Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're still here. It is 11 after the hour on WSB. I am Eric Erickson. This is Atlanta's Evening News starting an hour early today as the Florida refugees begin the slow trek home and the rest of you begin cleaning up your yards and whatnot. It is a real mess out there. I got to tell you, just as to start the show here, our neighborhood, we lost power for a little while yesterday. had battery backup was able to continue doing the show uh i did not realize till after the show was over that the backside of our neighborhood had lost power for more than six hours it was this morning before they were able to get back online and we've got some friends who actually live in a, a subdivision uh, in middle georgia that is close to major roads and they're expecting to be without power for a week uh, a buddy of mine at georgia power is keeping me informed and says there are about 500,000 people without power. Uh, the Georgia Power linemen have been stationed in Middle Georgia for the most part, sleeping in cots at the uh, at the Macon Coliseum. And this, there's just a lot of downed trees out there. I got out of our neighborhood today, went to the gym, went to the grocery store, and there were trees everywhere. There were twisted, there were no tornadoes, and yet there were twisted trees and twisted power lines. And there were trees that were uprooted and blew enough uh, in the strong winds into the giant uh, towers for the power lines and taking them out, causing some of the problems out there. There's just, a, there's a lot of damage out there. And it's going to be a while. Georgia Power is working as hard as they can. I went to Chick-fil-A earlier. They were thankfully open. They did not open for breakfast. They opened at lunchtime today. And there were some Georgia Power linemen who were there. And I was going to buy them lunch, but the manager beat me to it and gave them all uh, gave them all lunch uh, for on the house. And that was good for him. Uh, they they deserved it. They earned it. Uh, they are out there trying to get the power on, folks. And uh, God bless them for doing it. It is not a not a thankful job, uh, largely because so many people are so impatient and and can't understand the logistics and whatnot going into why they can't get their power on. So just be patient with Georgia Power. They're doing the best they can. Uh, we are taking your phone calls here, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. We're going to move into regular programming, and there is a lot of stuff. In fact, so much stuff, I took the unusual uh, task of printing out. Normally, I just you, put it on my computer screen. There's so much stuff I, I needed to sort it today, so much stuff we haven't been able to get to, starting with this report from Stephen Dynan in the Washington Times. Illegal immigration across the southwest border has doubled in the last four months, according to new government data that suggests the early gains of President Trump's tenure are wearing off. More than 30,000 illegal immigrants were nabbed in August, up 22% compared to July and up nearly 100% compared to April where fewer than 16,000 illegal immigrants were arrested by the Border Patrol or stopped at ports of entry by Customs and Border Protection officers. The numbers are still lower than they were a year before Mr. O under Obama, but the gains Mr. Trump first made in his first months in office are dissipating. Now, I wonder why. Part of it, I suspect, has to do with mixed signals coming from the administration, and don't deny it, there are mixed signals. The man who said Mexico was going to pay for the wall 
is now looking at caving altogether on the wall. What do I mean? Well, here's this from the Politico. President Trump is sending public and private signals that he is ready to deal on legislation protecting young undocumented immigrants. Uh-oh. Somebody left his phone on. Oh, my goodness gracious. Sorry, folks. That's unprofessional. And who is it? Why, it is a member of the state Senate trying to call and talk to me while I'm on the radio. Sorry, David Schaefer. I'll have to call you back later. (laughs) Oh, my goodness gracious. Um, I got to talk to him anyway. But nonetheless, uh, so House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi said Tuesday, The president has told her in private he would sign the DREAM Act. Now, stop right there. Nancy Pelosi says the president will sign the DREAM Act. We should not believe Nancy Pelosi because Nancy Pelosi is pushing an agenda. Nancy Pelosi doesn't like the president. And Nancy Pelosi would like to embarrass the president. We should not believe Nancy Pelosi. Who should we believe? I would submit we should believe the president. And what has the president said? He has tweeted he intends to sign the DREAMER Act. The president and the White House staff are saying he will sign DACA into law. Having said he would repeal it, what the president's team is now saying in the White House is that the president has long maintained that he needed to get rid of DACA and he has done that. But he believes Congress should act and will sign it into law. That's what the White House staff is saying. White House sources are telling me Jeff Sessions is very angry about this. But they're saying the president wants to cut a deal with the Democrats. Now, why does the president want to do this? Let's back up for a minute. The president has, for a very long time, been in a bubble. The president has been surrounded by people in the White House who have told him whatever he wanted to hear. They have provided him news clippings. They have provided him access to to Fox News. They have provided him access to Breitbart.com. They provided him access to the Daily Caller. They provided him access to a score of websites that have served as essentially um, yes-men to the president. Uh, All of these websites out there that they've been dropping on his desk have been essentially propaganda arms of the White House, uh, making everything rosy. There's a change, though. General Kelly, the new chief of staff, has cut that out. In fact, the president was overheard recently lamenting he hasn't seen anything from Breitbart or the Daily Caller lately. Because General Kelly isn't putting those things on his desk. Those things can't make it past the general to the president. What is making it past the general to the president is the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, the Miami Herald, the Austin American Statesman, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the Chicago Tribune. Mainstream media outlets are now cluttering the president's desk, where once he had Breitbart.com, NationalReview.com, The Weekly Standard, Daily Caller, Powerline, The Resurgent, Red State, you name it. They have transitioned him back to a traditional news feed. 
And in the traditional news feed, according to people in the White House, and they're not just talking to me, that there have been reports of this in National Journal and Politico and elsewhere, the president, for the first time in his presidency, suddenly realizes a lot of people don't like him. And he wants to be liked. So the president has decided to start cutting these deals with the Democrats. And what happened after he cut the debt ceiling deal with the Democrats? The president delighted in the headlines from the New York Times, from the Washington Post, from Morning Joe on MSNBC, from CNN and the like, that he's reaching across the aisle. He's working with the Democrats. And so now he wants to do more of that because suddenly he realizes if he does that, in these publications he's getting praised. And if he's getting praised in these publications, then it's going to help his poll numbers. They've convinced him of this in the White House. So he wants to sign DACA into law. He wants to do what Barack Obama never could. So you don't have to believe Nancy Pelosi on this. Just believe the president. Believe his advisors in the White House. The president's advisors in the White House want the president to sign DACA into law. They will make changes so that no one can accuse them of just doing what Barack Obama did. But they want to do it because the president wants good press. And since he's no longer seeing the outlets that give him good press when he doesn't do these things, and he is seeing the outlets that give him good press when he does do these things, well, guess what? The institutional apparatus of the White House is steering the president away from his campaign promises towards what the media wants him to do. There is a saving grace for all of you who are concerned, though, and I'll tell you what it is when we come back. It's 26 after the hour. Eric Erickson here. The phone number 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Don't forget, you can text WSB to 444-999 and sign up for my daily email from The Resurgent, uh, where all the stuff we're talking about today, all the links and everything, typically in the daily email, my morning briefing that I send out every single morning at 6 a.m., which is way too early, but uh, you need it so you know what's going on for the day. Um, the podcast for this program is now in Google Play as well. If you look for Eric Erickson's show, you'll find it in Google Play. You'll find it on iTunes. You'll find it everywhere, uh, even iHeartMedia now and in um, oh, TuneIn.com. We're everywhere. We're everywhere. So the president looks like he wants to sign legislation to allow dreamers to stay in the country. And on the spending deal and the debt ceiling deal, he's only going to look for minimal security provisions. He wants some border security, but he's not going to get Congress to build the wall in the current legislative package. You don't have to believe Nancy Pelosi on this. You just believe the people in the White House who are saying the same thing. They're echoing this, not as stridently as Nancy Pelosi. She's playing to her base, but the president's got a base, and they don't want to upset the base, and it sounds like he's breaking a promise. And to a degree, he is. He still wants the wall. He's just not going to fight for it right now. But he's a fighter, just not on this. There's a saving grace for those of you who are a little disappointed, though. The president may be surrounded with a bunch of people some of you derisively call globalists. He may be surrounded with immigration squishes. 
but he himself is not. The president fundamentally at his core wants a border wall. The president fundamentally at his core knows his base wants a border wall. The president fundamentally at his core is far more interested in being liked by his base than liked by the New York Times. So no, we're probably not going to get a wall right now. It will be on the list of of unfulfilled promises, not broken promises like repealing Obamacare, but unfulfilled promises still to come. But the president wants the wall. The president wants the wall. He supports building the wall. He's getting bids on the wall. They're already coming up with designs for the wall. The wall is coming if he has anything to do with it. Now, the key here, though, is how far does he go to compromise with the Democrats? And that's a bit of a concern because the president did like the PR from the mainstream media about the debt ceiling deal. How far is he going to go? Well, there's another wrinkle in all of this as well, and that is Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon is out saber-rattling about primarying Republicans. I, I, you know, if we've done weather for the last two days, so I've been recording a standalone podcast for the show, uh, and I've talked about this some, but for radio listeners, and there's new details today, I want to bring you up to speed on what Bannon is talking about doing that is making Republicans very, very angry. It is 37 after the hour. The phone number here, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. And to answer the random emailer uh, who will listen to this sometime in the next 24 hours, uh, the show is typically live 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern. So if you're listening to the podcast and you want to call the show, you got to call between 5 and 7 p.m. Eastern. I wasn't expecting to get an email like that, nonetheless. Steve Bannon wants to primary Republican incumbents. Uh, Now, the Republicans are worried because they think that Bannon is going to drain millions of dollars from the Republican Party's funds so that he can run in primaries. And what they mean by that is that they're going to defend their incumbents. And they're upset about how dare Steve Bannon. You know, I'm not a big Steve Bannon fan. Uh, there, there's no love loss here, but I don't have a problem with this. And I see friends of mine uh, on social media apoplectic over this. I mean, genuinely, seriously apoplectic over this. And I don't know why. Because Mitch McConnell has taken this to an art form. Mitch McConnell has turned the National Republican Senatorial Committee into an incumbent protection racket. But not only that, Mitch McConnell has turned it into a defeat conservatives racket. Mitch McConnell used the National Republican Senatorial Committee to back David Dewhurst over Ted Cruz. He used the National Republican Senatorial Committee to back Charlie Crist over Marco Rubio. He used it to back Arlen Specter, who turned to become a Democrat over Pat Toomey. 
he decided to spend money on Carly Fiorina's losing campaign in California rather than Ken Buck's winning campaign in Colorado, costing Ken Buck the loss. Ken Buck outperformed every Republican on the ballot in 2010 for the Senate and lost by a point and a half, winning independence in Colorado. But McConnell refused to support him because Ken Buck was a conservative. And let's not forget Mississippi and Chris McDaniel against Thad Cochran. And yet the Republicans are upset that Steve Bannon's going to give them a dose of their own medicine. They're outraged that Steve Bannon would run against incumbent Republicans. I don't understand why. I don't understand why they would be upset by that. They've been doing it to conservatives. And see, this ultimately is fundamentally the problem is they don't believe conservatives can win. This, by the way, this is why I'm supporting Roy Moore in Alabama. He and I, we disagree on a lot of things, but I'm supporting Roy Moore because Luther Strange is just an establishment. Yes, man. Luther Strange is not going to stand up to Mitch McConnell. Roy Moore will. Luther Strange is not going to deviate from the, the party establishment hackery. Roy Moore will. Luther Strange is never going to fight for conservatives. Roy Moore will. I disagree with him on birtherism stuff. I disagree with some of the things he said and choices he's made. I've actually gotten more hate mail in the past year, in the past 24 hours for endorsing, endorsing Roy Moore than for anything else I've done this year. People are livid with me. Establishment Republicans who thought I was reasonable, liberal Democrats who thought I was one of the good guy Republicans because I didn't care for the president. How dare you support Roy Moore? How dare you not support Roy Moore? You complain about the state of the Republican Party? You complain about the corruption of the Republican Party? You complain about Mitch McConnell? You complain about the yes-men? You complain about the lack of ideas, and yet you keep supporting the status quo? I've got my differences with the president, but he's disrupting the Republican Party. And it needs to be disrupted even more. Look at the Republicans who said they wanted to repeal Obamacare, and when the time came for them to do it, they backed away from it. We do need to continue fighting in the Republican primary. Now, the media, of course, is going to fixate over this. The media, of course, is going to want to focus at all costs on the Republican infighting. The media is going to want to focus at all costs on all of this. The reality, however, is that the Democratic Party is just as divided. Nancy Pelosi is getting heat today from Democrats for saying that single-payer health care shouldn't be a litmus test for getting elected in a Democratic primary. She previously got heat for saying that one should not have to be pro-abortion to get elected in a Democratic primary. The Democratic National Committee chairman said the same thing, that they, it should not be a choice. Well, actually, he first said it should be and was rebuked even by Keith Ellison, the whack job from Minnesota who wanted his job. The Democratic Party has all sorts of problems the media doesn't want to pay to. They want, they want to fixate on Republican problems. They want to fixate on incumbent Republican problems. They want to fixate on wackadoo conservatives. And any conservative, no matter how good the candidate, is always un, unqualified, unable to win.
unhelpful to the GOP, which is nonsense. They said that about Ted Cruz. They said that about Rand Paul. They said that about Mike Lee. They said that about Marco Rubio. They said that about Pat Toomey. They said that about Ben Sass. They said that about Ron Johnson. On and on and on and on, the Republican establishment backed the other guy. And the other guy lost, and they said, well, we're done. Washed our hands of this race. Can't support them. They're not going to win the win the, the general election. And yet they did. So here comes Steve Bannon, and it's Mitch McConnell and his allies actually saying, well, the Republicans may just impeach the president. Yeah, they're actually saying that. If they're going to try to help conservatives get elected, we may just turn a blind eye when the Democrats try to impeach the president. Now, the question here, there is a relevant question, is the effectiveness of this, because there are some data benchmarks on this. Listen, one of the data metrics here is Paul Ryan. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Steve Bannon tried to get that guy, what was his name? It was Paul something else, I think, um, to run against Paul Ryan. And he went down in flames. He didn't win. They poured money. I think Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram both wound up endorsing the guy. And he went down in flames. He lost. They've tried this around the country. You know, for example, Laura Ingram takes credit for Dave Bratt's election, and she was one of the people who championed Dave Bratt all along. I mean, trying to build up her radio show, I guess, and, and claimed that she had some sort of level of influence, and it really wasn't her. There were tons and tons of people on the ground in that district who were tired of Eric Canner. And you see, this is part of my problem. You know, I have a really good track record in this state of helping get Republicans elected. And I don't spend a ton of time talking about it because it really wasn't me who got these people elected. It was you guys. And so when Steve Bannon comes out and he starts talking about his effectiveness and his ability to do this, first I think, well, Paul Ryan was, I mean, he got all the, the right-wing talk shows against him. He got the Breitbart guys against him. He got all the conservative activists on the ground targeting him, pounding the pavement against him, and he still won. And he didn't win with Democratic crossovers. He won with Republicans. So how effective are you really? I don't know the answer to that. What I do know is that it really is you who makes the difference. It's not me. It's not Steve Bannon. It's not Breitbart.com. It's not the Resurgent.com. It's not Fox News. It's you. And if you find a candidate who tells you what you want to hear, you probably will gravitate to that candidate. But it's very easy to undermine one of those candidates if they're a fake, if they're not sincere. You guys can spot BS artists from a mile away. And a lot of the people vying to be the conservative candidate of choice, they're con artists. And they, they may fool some of these national organizers, but they don't fool you guys. I was reminded, you know, the, the very first state campaign, congressional campaign I ever ran. This candidate uh, running up in North Georgia. I was actually the lawyer and the campaign manager was so passive aggressive and wouldn't return people's phone calls and got to the point he wouldn't even return the candidate's phone calls. I wound up running the race. And he was a publisher. He, he was a publisher who also had a ministerial degree and, and preached on occasion and published Christian materials and decided he, because Northwest Georgia was such a conservative area 
they decided to run him as the preacher instead of the small businessman. And I remember sitting in the meeting when we were laying out his campaign strategy, I was walking him through the exercise. Uh, some of you guys who, some of you have asked me to help run you for office before, or at least sit down and I've run you through the exercise before the, the strengths, weaknesses, uh, analysis, the, the coming up with your campaign message. I used to do this for a living and I've done this for a couple of listeners in the past running for office. And then you sit down and you, you get the, you get the candidates, friends and family in the room because they're the people who will tell you all of the bad things about the candidate. They're, they're not afraid to tell the candidate he sucks. And you come up with, with something and, and I'm listening to all this and I say, we well, don't need to run this guy as the preacher. We need to run him as the small businessman. Because he published liberal Christian theology in some cases. He didn't just publish that, but there were some questionable books. There was a, a book of a, published by his publishing company for uh, one of the liberal Baptist groups that advocated gay marriage. And this was in 2002. So they're going to attack him on this if you do it. This is the strength you're positing. It's his biggest weakness. So anyway, they ran him as the preacher, and of course the other side started pounding him on, on being a liberal Christian and really began to undermine him with the base in this district. And even though he was the best guy, he was the most honest guy, he was the guy with the most integrity, it didn't matter because this was the way he was being characterized and he couldn't respond to all the attacks. And I'll never forget, we went to Washington, D.C. We were trying to get the Club for Gross Endorsement. We were walking across K Street. We get in the middle of the pedestrian crosswalk and he turns to me and he says, I'll tell you what. If I ever do this again, I will never run as the GD preacher again. <laughs> That's your problem. People kind of, they, they can sense this, that, that your, your heart's not really in this. You should have run as a small businessman. You can sense this. You get all these people who run as the conservative because they need to be the conservative and it's so easy to undermine them because they're not. And that's part of the problem is because these national guys want to beat the establishment so bad, they go out and they find the guy who tells them what they want to hear and they do a terrible job vetting these candidates and these candidates get into primaries and the other side comes after them with all the opposition research and you say, wait a second, this guy really isn't a conservative. I think I'd rather stick with the, the, the devil I know than the one I don't know, and so they lose. The vetting of these candidates is important, and these national guys, they often fail. I'm not great at it. Rely on other people to tell me someone's good. If I do it myself, I mean, the, the people know which buttons to push for me. That's why I don't like to meet with candidates very much anymore, unless other people I know swear by them. You shouldn't either. So I think it's great to go after the establishment. I think it's great that the establishment's complaining about Steve Bannon. I think it's great to make them lose primaries. But I'm just not so sure how effective the effort will be, given what they've done in the past. It is 55 after the hour. Eric Erickson here. Extended coverage today. Uh, making up for the last two days and uh, bringing you the latest on the storms and whatnot. Still around 400 some odd, 450 that way. In a second, I just got an email. I can tell you the number. Where did this email go? 
All right, here we have the latest is um, 600,000 Georgia Power customers currently without power, more than 9,600 cases of individual damage or trouble, including broken poles and lines the company's working to repair. Damage and outages are widespread and across the state with hurricane impacting service to customers around Savannah, Columbus, Metro Atlanta, Macon, and beyond. Uh, so more than I told you, I thought it was 500,000, 600,000. That is a lot of people without power. And they are working as hard as they possibly can to bring power back. Um, it, we've got a lot more we need to talk about. Uh, and when we come back, I want to actually spend a couple of minutes on the Ted Cruz story today. Yes, that Ted Cruz story. If you haven't heard, a Ted Cruz staffer used his Twitter account inappropriately. And Ted Cruz is getting the blame. And the media is, I mean, the, the media literally has people on CNN saying, oh, this could be a 2020 presidential campaign issue. This is just, it is a textbook example of how terrible the American media is. Right now, however, you should know the national debt has surpassed $20 trillion for the first time ever. On Friday, the president signed into a law a bill extending the debt ceiling and providing emergency relief for victims of Hurricane Harvey. The national debt officially topped $20 trillion. And as you might expect, it's all Donald Trump's fault now. They didn't care about it when, when Barack Obama was president. The debt ceiling didn't matter when Barack Obama was president. The national debt didn't matter. And suddenly, Democrats who said it didn't matter forever, as Barack Obama raised the national debt more than any single president combined and more than all other presidents combined, now suddenly it matters. Now suddenly it's a massively urgent situation. It's just such nonsense. The, the the hypocrisy, you know, do people have standards? That, that's one of the most frustrating things I'm mindful of uh, with this show and with the resurgent.com is I'm willing to say a Republican or a Democrat are terrible and, and I'm willing to say they're good and I'm willing to be consistent about it. And I said the national debt mattered under Barack Obama. It matters under Donald Trump. It mattered under George W. Bush. But there are a lot of partisans who just don't seem like they care. And it is so frustrating our kids are going to have a bankrupt nation because of this. It is 12 after the hour. I am Eric Erickson. This is Atlanta's Evening News on WSB. The phone number is 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Hope you guys are starting to dry out. I am the idiot who left the irrigation system on and got up this morning and the sprinklers were watering the yard as if the yard needed it. Uh, we're supposed to have one of those rain sensors, so it doesn't do it, but it did it anyway. So I guess the sensor's broken or been run over by a lawnmower or something. In any event, um, I'm going to make this as child-friendly as possible because I know many of you are in your cars and, and have your children with you. Um, uh, we, we will keep it appropriate. Senator Ted Cruz has been dragged into scandal for what well 
You know, politicians, with very few exceptions, uh, Ben Sass being one of them, and even Sass has people who manage his Twitter feed for him. Uh, Ted Cruz manages his Twitter feed, but he has other staffers who also do it. Uh, staff members will tweet from his account on his behalf. And a staff member apparently logged into Cruz's account and not his own liked an adult film star's tweet. It was an um, adult, well, it, it, was, it was very adult themed, let's just say this. It was for grown-ups who like looking at naked people. And the media has turned this into a massive story today. Chris Saliza of CNN was actually on TV today in serious tones. This could have 2020 implications if he decides to run for president again. Seriously. I, I mean, I got a Politico story right here. Senator Ted Cruz said Tuesday that a staff member of his was responsible for liking a pornographic Twitter post with the Texas lawmakers account chalking up the social media snafu to a mistake. And it goes on from there. Oh, my goodness. So, why do I bring this story up? Well, first of all, because there was a giant hurricane tropical storm that sailed through Florida and Georgia. And you would never know it the way the media is covering the Ted Cruz tweet. They, they would far prefer to cover that than to cover um, red states in the South being hit by natural disaster. There's no gun violence involved, so they, they can't blame the NRA. So they, they don't want to cover these things. But they all hate Ted Cruz. There are enough San Francisco liberals and Beltway Republicans who hate him that they can generate cl clicks. And the reason this story is such a big story is because the media needs to generate clicks. The media ad model is broken. And the way the media has determined that it will fix its ad model is to run salacious stories with salacious headlines and try to get you to click the story. And in the clicks, then, it generates revenue for them because of the advertisers. And all of the people in Florida and 600,000-plus people in Georgia, they're without power. And so they're not surfing the web right now looking for stories about the aftermath of Hurricane Irma because they can't get on the Internet. But the San Francisco liberals and the Beltway Republicans who hate Ted Cruz can, so they're playing up the story as if it is a giant deal. It is a staffer who is not logged into his own account. And see, of course, the, the subtle subtext of this is, well, Anthony Weiner was creepy, so surely Ted Cruz is too. How do we know it was a staffer? We need the name of the staffer. We need to see Ted Cruz destroy the staffer's life. Otherwise, we're going to presume it's Ted Cruz. So let's say Ted Cruz does that. Let's say Ted Cruz drags out the staffer, the staffer admits it, and Ted Cruz fires him. Or better yet, Ted Cruz puts a bullet in his head on national television. Well, then, of course, the story is how Ted Cruz treated the staffer. Not it, It's no longer that the staffer did it. Oh, who cares about that story? Ted Cruz just destroyed someone's life. How dare he? It proves he's just the awful, terrible human being. We thought he, There's no way he can win this story. 
I mean, Cruz laughed it off, as he should have. This is a nonsensical story. And the media has run wall-to-wall cover. It has been on CNN all day. It has been on MSNBC all day. It has made the headlines on CNBC, a business news channel. It's been all over the national print media, the Politico, the Washington Post, the New York Times, you name it, the Hill. They've all had the story. And it's all because they would rather cover Ted Cruz who generates clicks. Anytime they write about Ted Cruz, it generates clicks. I've learned this at the Resurgent. Hell, you write about Ted Cruz, it generates traffic. We got a standing rule at the Resurgent that if something happens with Ted Cruz, by God, I wrote about this story today to defend Ted Cruz because it generates clicks. Anything about Ted Cruz does, and clicks generate ad revenue for a media site. That's why they made a big deal out of the story. And so what you're finding in the national news media now is that salacious stories that generate clicks get far more coverage than the major major news stories you and I need to know. The salacious gets the coverage. The major news does not, unless they can write it in such a way to make it salacious. Is it any wonder the nation is in the state it's in? The media is so desperate for cheap clicks and clickbait that they will highlight something about someone that no one cares about that might generate a click than they would a massive natural disaster. Then they would the North Korean nuclear situation. Then they would the China-Russia situation with North Korea. Then they would the Iranian situation. Oh, have you not heard about the China-Russia situation? This is firing up big. It is. And you're not hearing about it in the media. I'll tell you about it when we come back. It's 26 after the hour. Uh, I have a, well, exciting announcement for me today. I don't know about you people. <laughs> I just got in uh, the the final stack. Um, I, I get uh, under my book contract, I got so many copies of, uh, of uh, Before You Wake. And they showed up today completely unexpectedly. Uh, two big boxes uh, for me to give to family members. And uh, it's the book looks really good. I am, I've written three books, and this is the first time I have genuinely been proud of a book. And I've, I've the last book I wrote, I felt it felt so necessary to write it, and I was so, I, I mean, it was providential that a friend of mine connected me to my co-author Bill Blankshane. And Bill, just when people suggest I write this book, he's like, you got to do it. You got to do this one yourself. And I did. And I mean, every word in that book uh, is a word I labored over. Half of them I cried over. um, And it's just such a rewarding experience to see this. And it's, it's not a political book. It is the cookbook you guys have wanted me to write. It is the book to my kids that my wife has wanted me to write. It is the part theology um, that some of you have wanted me to write. And it's all there. It avoids politics. Uh, And in fact, that's part of the the purpose of the book is to to tell my kids a little about me and the way I raise them and why. 
and to give them a sense of how they should live their life in a world that is increasingly hostile to their values and, and to build community with people who don't see eye to eye with them on politics. And so it leaves the politics out and, and it encourages them and you and the reader to find common ground with people. And of course, the whole concept was having had a near-death experience. What would I want my kids to know if I died before they woke? Uh, including what their favorite recipes were and how to make them. So it's all in there. If you want to pre-order the book, it comes out October 3rd. I am really proud of this book, and I hope you will be too. You can text the word WAKE, W-A-K-E, to 444-999. Text the word WAKE to 444-999, and you will get back links to Barnes & Noble and Amazon. You can even order the audio book. It's even in my own voice. It's 40 after the hour. I'm Eric Erickson. This is Atlanta's Evening News on WSB. The U.S. has threatened to cut off China and Russia for undermining sanctions against North Korea. This is from the Washington Free Beacon. The Trump administration on Tuesday is threatening to cut off the U.S. financial system access to Chinese and Russian companies, helping North Korea smuggle coal overseas to circumvent international sanctions on Pyongyang's nuclear activities. Marshall Billingsley, the Treasury Department's Assistant Secretary for Terrorist Financing, provided Congress with intelligence images mapping North Korea's illicit shipping networks used to mask the origin of exported coal to China and Russia. You know, while this is happening, um, even liberals, and that is a big deal, even liberals are cheering the Trump administration's ability to get a unanimous resolution out of the UN Security Council putting the most stringent sanctions on North Korea that have ever been imposed by the Security Council on any other nation. That is a huge, huge deal. And of course, it's not on the front page of major newspapers. Even the liberals are willing to give them credit because it shows the president and Nikki Haley did something effective. And in fact, Nikki Haley and the president are not going to be beholden to the mistakes of Bill Clinton, George Bush, and Barack Obama when it comes to North Korea. This is a massive deal. And they need to be commended. They should be commended. It is the right thing to do. It is what they did. It, it is spot on. But there's a reason it was unanimous. Now, I know this the saying that everything becomes the butt is meaningless, and this really isn't. There is, though, a reason that Russia and China didn't veto it, and the reason they went along with it is because they're circumventing it. And the Trump administration, pardon the pun, it is intentional, but they're going to play a Trump card now. Because China and Russia signed on to the UN agreement. And part of the reason they signed on to the UN agreement is because they know that they can go through the black market and undermine the very same UN resolution they supported. Except the Trump administration is going to make it difficult for them to do that. They're going to impose sanctions on the Russian and Chinese companies that are helping the North Koreans violate the UN resolution, that are helping the North Koreans get around the sanctions. They're not targeting the nations, you see. They're not targeting China and Russia. So China and Russia 
will not be given a black eye in the media. They, they won't look bad. It'll be going after their businesses. Even though they're state-owned businesses, there's a firewall difference in the minds of these people, in the minds of these countries, in the minds of the press. So it looks like what Russia and China are trying to do to undermine it is they're not going to be able to do it. So Nikki Haley and the president are getting a legitimate win, as they should. Well, you know, it is funny to watch the media cover this story. They, you could tell they didn't really, really want to go there. They didn't really want to give Nikki Haley credit. They didn't really want to give the president credit. But you've got liberal analysts, even some Democratic members of Congress who were willing to say, wow, can't believe you guys were able to get the UN to do this. So what they've done instead is they're highlighting other stories. Like, for example, uh, Mexico is not offering aid uh, with Harvey and Irma. Mexico is mad at the president. And, you know, I got to I listen. Mexico's got a legitimate grievance. Say what you will about the country. They're in the middle of a civil war against major drug cartels, largely at the behest of this government. They offered up aid for to help us with Hurricane Harvey just as they did with Katrina and the Trump administration wouldn't take their help. And not only would the Trump administration not take their help, but Mexico experienced a devastating earthquake with a lot of people dead and a hurricane of their own. And the Trump administration not only offered condolences, but didn't offer to help Mexico. And that's all well and good if they want to do it. I think it's being a bad neighbor myself. Um, but Mexico in the past has routinely helped. Mexico sent troops to South Louisiana and Mississippi to help with the rescue and rebuilding effort after Katrina. And they offered to do the same with Harvey in Texas. And the Texas governor asked them to, accepted them, and then the federal government said, yeah, we don't really need it. That is, well, not playing well. And there, so the media is focused on these stories. The media is focused on the lack of foreign aid to help after Harvey and Irma. They all hate the Trump administration. Pay no attention to them getting a huge win out of the Security Council, a unanimous win out of the Security Council. They all hate us. They're not offering aid. I, I don't know that we really even need the aid, but the media would much rather focus on something negative about the Trump administration than focus on the fact that he got what Barack Obama never could, a unanimous resolution for tough enforceable sanctions against North Korea from the, oh yeah, 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 just spare me liberals. Yes, Obama was able to get unanimous resolutions out of the Security Council about North Korea, but never, even the left is admitting it, even Democratic members of Congress are admitting it today, never with enforceable, stringent regulations shutting down the North Korean economy, was never able to go that far with a unanimous resolution, and Trump did it. So instead, the media would rather focus on something else. Oh, I wonder if this will make national news. It certainly made local news in Seattle this evening. Seattle's mayor is resigning. Why? Well, he's a Democrat, a former state legislator, elected mayor in 2013. Uh, he's been accused of being a kid toucher. Yep. Um, a 54-year-old cousin. 
is the fifth man to accuse the mayor of sexual abuse. Uh, the cousin says when the cousin was 13, uh, the mayor forced him into, um, well, explicit acts in the mid-70s. This is the fifth man to come forward uh, since April uh, saying uh, that the mayor abused them. And, you know, the left, particularly gay rights activists, have been all over the story about Ted Cruz today uh, and his staffer tweeting out a, a or liking a pornographic tweet from Ted Cruz's account. I wonder if they'll cover this story. I mean, I'm actually surprised the Seattle paper, I mean, the Seattle paper couldn't avoid it because it's the mayor of Seattle, but even mentioned that he's a Democrat. I'm I'm shocked by that. Shocked, I tell you. Uh, You know, by the way, he's he's been a gay rights champion, this mayor, and is one of the people who's called essentially for prosecuting Christians for not baking cakes for weddings, too. I bet they'll leave that out of the story. I'm sure they will. after the hour I am Eric Erickson and you need to brace yourself because it is the season where some of you make an incredible uh, an incredible good gracious I'm sorry I'm tired and I cannot talk this afternoon you make a regrettable choice you're like my friend Josh Hammer you you wake up and you realize you've made a terrible choice. And, and he, my buddy Josh, he, he wakes up and he, he doesn't even acknowledge he's made a terrible choice. He embraces it. It is a, a, a sinful, terrible existence. And it doesn't recognize the error of his ways. And you just have to pray for people like that. And, and there are a lot of you like him. With no shame, he goes into the world and orders pumpkin spice lattes. And it's a, it is a, a sinful, terrible thing. I, in my book, I, I write a piece in my book about pumpkin spice as an abomination. Because pumpkin is not a spice, it is a gourd, it is a fruit, it is, it is something that should be enjoyed and, and Starbucks ruins it. But, but, feminists are on the case now. Because if you drink, and, and Josh is Jewish, my, my buddy Josh Hammer, he's Jewish too. And he drinks pumpkin spice and he's helping white supremacists. According to feminists... If you drink pumpkin spice lattes, you are supporting white supremacy. You're funding white supremacy. You are part of the problem. Ultraviolet, a group that claims to be a powerful and rapidly growing community of people mobilized to fight sexism and create a more inclusive world that accurately represents all women, which means one fat lesbian in her mother's basement, thought it might be the first time you've ever heard of it. They're leading a campaign to banish the pumpkin spice latte because it 
well, it funds white supremacy and racism in the White House, and the, you need to take action against Starbucks. According to Ultraviolet's website, fully 70,000 people have given Starbucks a piece of their mind about their white supremacy over the pumpkin spice latte. Now listen, there are a lot of problems with the unnatural nature of pumpkin spice. But white supremacy ain't it. But that's not the only only thing that is white supremacy according to the left. And I'll I'll tell you the other terrible thing, police in this country are propping up white supremacy, particularly in the aftermath of Hurricane Irma in a way you may not appreciate. According to The Nation, the, the, the communist website, used to be a magazine and now it's just a website. According to The Nation, private property rights are a legacy of white supremacy in this country. And the police, after Hurricane Irma blew through Florida and Georgia, are supporting white supremacy by stopping looters from raiding private property. That's right. Y- y- y'all, now the reason that, that I, I start a, a news program with a ridiculous story like this is very simple. There is a growing body of evidence out there that Though the public hates Republicans, they hate Democrats even more. And it's stuff like this that makes them do so. If you are a property owner, if you are an aspirational property owner, if you're someone who wants to own private property, to be told by a Democratic activist who's never had a real job in their life that you support white supremacy because you own your own home, and thereby contribute to the tax base that pays for the failing public schools that the idiot who thinks it's white supremacy gets educated by, it really makes you mad. It has got to make you livid to pay taxes to the state of Georgia, which then funds universities and colleges around the state with a bunch of liberal professors who perpetuate this Black Lives Matters white supremacy nonsense. It has got to make you live it as a local taxpayer to fund your local public school. You have no choice in the matter. And you fund it. And they have a bunch of terrible teachers teaching your kids ridiculous things. Or they've embraced Common Core. And even the teachers don't like it, but they can't get out of it. I mean, we got a state school superintendent in this state who opposes Common Core and can't get rid of it because everyone else is aligned against him in the state. And you've got corporate interests flooding the state so all the advocacy groups out there support Common Core. And they're just training little worker bees to be mind-numbed automatons who think that private property is white supremacy and they got to go work for, for a major corporation. They can't innovate. They can't compete. They can't stand up against the private corporations. The left in this country really believes that 2016 was an anomaly. And there's a lot of data to suggest it was an anomaly. There's a lot of data to suggest that that a Joe Biden could have beaten Donald Trump, but Hillary Clinton was an immensely flawed candidate. By the way, Hillary Clinton's book, she to this day can't accept that she lost 
It is everybody else's fault. She cannot accept that yes, we cankles is not a solution and not a motto worth running on. And that's essentially what it was. A, a, a poor man's version of Barack Obama's campaign. She cannot accept that people don't like her. She cannot accept that people disagree with her. She cannot accept she was out of touch. She cannot accept that her campaign ran a terrible campaign. It's Bernie Sanders' fault. It's Donald Trump's fault. It's the Russians' fault. It's Fox News' fault. It's my fault. It's Rush Limbaugh's fault. It's Glenn Beck's fault. It's everybody else's fault, but it's not her fault. And yet, she's got all these people who supported her, who cried over her loss, who see the police stopping looters in Florida, and, and they say the looters are good, the police are bad. They see someone who has private property and they want to take it away from them. They believe it's a legacy of white supremacy. This is why Donald Trump. Yeah. And yeah, by the way, yes, I'm moving slow here and I'm pausing a lot. I, I, can, I can hear the laughter in the control room. It, it, did he go off the air? Or it, no, it is because I'm having a hard time processing this. I mean, this is ridiculous. This is, and I'm also trying not to say bad words on radio that begin with S and other letters because this is stupid stuff. And yet it is becoming increasingly mainstream on the left. These people believe that you are bad if you dare to pay taxes. And yet if you don't pay taxes, they want to take everything from you and throw you in jail because any way you look at it, you're supporting white supremacy. There's no way you can win. This will eventually consume itself, but how much of the country will it destroy in the process before it starts consuming itself? Because liberal logic on none of this stuff makes sense. Liberal logic on global warming makes no sense. Liberal logic on same-sex marriage makes no sense. Liberal logic on white supremacy makes no sense. No sense. Liberal logic on property ownership, it, it eventually, it collapses in on itself. There is no consistency to it. It is all about emotion. All of this is emotional. It's why these people say they feel instead of they think because they feel that this is bad. They don't actually think it's bad because they don't know because they went to a government school run on Common Core and they have no freaking clue one way or the other. They just feel bad. And if they feel bad, it must be bad. I don't give a damn about their feelings. I want to know what they think. The problem is they don't think. And when they open their mouth and try to express a thought, they can't form it because they went to a failing government school and the people who propped up their failing government school that they're quite proud of, they think are white supremacists because they played property taxes. None of these people should ever be put in leadership and they think that they are entitled to leadership and that you're a racist bigot for not letting them be in leadership. And you know what's so funny about it is the more they do this, the more likely it is Donald Trump stays in power and I'd be quite okay with that compared to them. It is 27 after the hour. Eric Erickson here. The phone number 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. Uh, you know, is it Jamel Hill? Jamelly, I don't know how you pronounce her first name. She's the evening sports center anchor on ESPN who tweeted, Donald Trump is a white supremacist who has largely surrounded himself with other white supremacists. Trump is the most ignorant, offensive president of my lifetime. His rise is a direct result of white supremacy, period. The height of white privilege is to be able to ignore his white supremacy because it's of no threat to you. Well, it's a threat to me. Donald Trump is a bigot. Glad you could live with voting for him. I couldn't because I care about more than just myself. He's unqualified and unfit to be president. He is not a leader. And if he were not white, he would never have been elected. 
Those are a series of tweets. Now, she can't name any white supremacists who work around the president. Uh, those who can um, are coming up with people, some of whom don't even work there anymore, some of whom are Jewish, some of whom are Democrats. My buddy Ben Dominich over at The Federalist has a great write-up about this and says the big problem with this lady is that her show stinks. It's poorly produced, a poor graphics package. It looks like it's, it's, it's local, local cable. You know the local shows where you can go and, and you find the, the community channel? Yeah, it looks like that. Imagine if she was Kurt Schilling. Look at how ESPN treated Kurt Schilling. Uh, the reality, they're leaving her. She, she's, she's not being fired. Kurt Schilling was fired for tweeting out a meme. She was not fired for calling everybody who supports Donald Trump white supremacists. They need more Sage Steels at ESPN, not more of these Jamel Hill people. is 40 after the hour. Uh, Eric Erickson here on Atlanta's Evening News on WSB. Um, keep uh, Congressman Barry Loudermilk and his wife in your prayers. Uh, they were on I-40 on their way back from Washington Tuesday morning. Uh, they were hit from behind. Their car veered off the road, flipped uh, several times, landing on the passenger side. Uh, they were transported to the hospital, non-life-threatening injuries, thankfully. Um, uh, they were treated and released, thank God, uh, in a safe vehicle. Uh, good man, uh, a good family. Um, just the whole family, well-raised. He's a good guy. And he and his wife should be in your prayers. There is an article in the Washington Post. It's not an article, it's an opinion. And it's so typical this would happen. You have liberal lawyers from New York City have an op-ed in the Washington Post that um, Texas doesn't really deserve a federal bailout. And the reason is because they don't like Texas's policies. They, they don't like that Texas doesn't have an income. Texas is a low-tax state. There's no personal income tax. There's no corporate income tax, although there's a surrogate tax on corporate receipts. There's no state-level tax on estates. The Texas ranks number 46 out of 50 states in state and local tax burden. Therefore, Texas shouldn't get anything from the federal government unless they raise their taxes. These are, I mean, you expect these sorts of things. Um, but should New York State not get a federal uh, should New York State not get federal bailout for a hurricane or a natural disaster because they have such high taxes they should be able to do it themselves and the fact that they're not as proof that they're not fiscally responsible? I, I mean, you could make the argument the same way. They don't want to make the argument the same way, though. But essentially, um, they're saying that Texas needs to do more. Now, Texas is the second largest state. It is the largest of the continental United States, and its low-tax policy has poured in money. Texas is more able to fund its social services, its government, and its infrastructure than states like Illinois and, and New York that have higher tax burdens. And Texas, despite its low-tax burden, gets more revenue. Do you know why Texas gets more revenue? 
than states with high taxes like New York and Illinois. It's because it keeps its taxes low. It in, invites business and people in. They're business and people friendly. I mean, Illinois, for God's sakes, it's on the verge of bankruptcy. Illinois literally is on the verge of bankruptcy. Illinois has billions and billions of dollars in unfunded liabilities for pension plans because Illinois doesn't know how to cut. And all it does is raise taxes. And it raising taxes is driving people out of the state. But these lawyers who are looking at this, liberal lawyers from New York City, they, they don't look at this. They, they want to make a, they want to use a disaster to make a political point. That Texas is, it's stealing other people's, other state citizens and businesses because it's so low tax. And as a result, Texas shouldn't get any federal money. Well, they should, but they should pay it back according to these lawyers. You know what? Texas would be okay without the federal government's money. Except Texas has to do all sorts of federal mandates that drive up Texas's cost to help its own people. And so, yes, the federal government should kick in money, and it's the right thing to do. The federal government does it for everybody. They shouldn't do it just because somebody doesn't like Texas's tax policy. There are a lot of things I don't like about California, New York, and Illinois, but if something happened to them, they get federal dollars too. I, I could stay on this Texas tax topic, but there's another story out there that I think is worth pointing out. For the first time, Baltimore is on track to surpass New York City in murders, homicides. New York has a population of 8.5 million people and had 182 homicides as of September 3rd. Baltimore is less than 620,000 people and at 238 homicide victims. You know the difference here, and, and the news media is, is dancing around this, but what happened in Baltimore after Freddie Gray? The politicians in Baltimore blamed the police. Never mind that the facts of the, of the case showed that what the media alleged and what um, victims' rights advocates alleged and what a bunch of liberals alleged wasn't true. There was no white supremacy involved. There was no police abuse involved. You had the witch hunt by the district attorney. You, you know what's happened? The police in Baltimore have given up. And they've given up because they're being treated as the bad guy unfairly. They're being treated by, as the bad guy by politicians who find it easy to campaign against police abuse while then knowing that the abuse they claim is what keeps them safe at night. And the police have said, to heck with it. Well, they've actually probably said a different word, followed by it. But you know what I mean. They've given up on it. They, they've given up on policing. If they police and they try to stop crime, they're going to be accused of racism. They're going to be accused of white supremacy. So it's not worth it for them to put their life on the line. As a result, the system has stopped working. And when the system stops working, it collapses into anarchy. The left in this country systematically intends to undermine institutions of civil order. Because the left wants to create a new order. And the only way they can create the new order is for the current order to stop working. And unfortunately, the police are playing into their hands doing this in Baltimore, but I don't blame them. There is a no-win situation there. If they keep people safe, they're accused of white supremacy and racism. If they don't keep people safe, well, they can't be blamed, but people die. Baltimore needs to be cleaned up. But you know what ultimately is going to happen? Is that Baltimore, a very Democrat city, is going to start voting Republican.
It's 54 after the hour. Eric Erickson here. So some Trump lawyers I've known about this story for a while, and it, it is interesting that this is starting to trickle out now. Trump lawyers have wanted Jared Kushner out of the White House. Um, as the legal complications have um, grown within the White House relating to the Russia probe, a number of the president's lawyers, in fact, the president's personal lawyer who subsequently quit, uh, they've wanted Jared Kushner gone. Among their concerns was that Kushner was the advisor closest to the president who had the most dealing with Russian officials and business people during the campaign, some of which currently being examined by the Mueller probe and congressional oversight panels. Another issue is that his initial omission of any contacts with foreign officials from the form required to obtain security clearance. He later updated it with more than 100 contacts with foreign officials. Now, the lawyers were not united in the view, but uh, the prominent ones really wanted him to leave, and he not only did he not leave, there were no conversations about whether or not he should leave. The Mueller team is now starting to circle the White House, so to speak. They are getting closer and closer to interviews of people within the White House. Uh, the White House staff has begun the process of handing over key documents to the Mueller team. And Kushner is apparently um, one of the people they are looking at most significantly. Um, by the way, there's breaking news at this very moment. The Supreme Court has decided to grant the Trump administration's request to continue to bar most refugees under its travel ban. They are blocking lower court decisions, the Supreme Court is. The Supreme Court had initially ruled that the Trump administration plan was fine, and then uh, lower courts started imposing additional regulations. Uh, in the last 10 minutes, the Supreme Court has granted a Trump administration request to continue to bar most refugees. Without comment, it is blocking the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling that would have exempted refugees who have a contractual commitment from resettlement organizations from the travel ban. Uh, while they consider its legality, 24,000 people will be affected. Um, interestingly, Justice Kennedy has uh, been on the side, and this is unsigned, that it is unsigned, uh, as have uh, some of the other decisions, suggest that even some of the liberals on the court aren't willing to mess around with the president's powers under the immigration rules, and they shouldn't because a plain reading of the congressional legislation that gives the president this power makes it clear he has the power to do it. Uh, and because the president has the power to do it and doesn't have the power with restrictions, they should be doing this. But the Ninth Circuit and lower courts, they didn't care because the president's tweets upset them. Um, so the president gets some power restored even by the liberals on the Supreme Court today. Kind of a big deal. I'm sure we'll have more fallout from this tomorrow. We will talk to you then.